Well, you know what I think. I'm a Christian. I'm not going to deny that. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. Please do not go religious. Somebody's going to hell over there. He better not. Even the devil will speak the truth for, for his own purposes. This is war. Accept it. Back to Jerusalem podcast. Yeah, I'm back and I'm armed with righteousness. With your host, Eugene Bach. He just seems like he's got it all figured out. He's a righteous dude. Yep. Hello and welcome to another Back to Jerusalem podcast. I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, and I'm coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Sweden. But it's not Sweden that I'm talking about right now. I have a good friend with me that I've known for several years uh, inside the U.S. I've actually spent time in her home, and she's one of those rare people that I just I love talking to, and I love her testimony. She comes from a, and I'm going to let her tell her testimony, but she comes from a tribe group that is considered to be mostly unreached. And last time I talked to her, I don't know if that's still the same situation, but last time I talked to her, she's one of the few, if not only believers from her people group. Amreen, thank you so much for joining us, sister. I love being with you, and I'm so glad that uh, you agreed to come back on the Back to Jerusalem podcast. Thank you so much, brother, for having me here. And it's my honor and privilege to glorify Jesus in this podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, just for our audience, because I mean, we've had you on before. We actually have done a podcast in your home. Absolutely loved it. Have uh, you know met with your husband several times? He's, he's been a huge, huge blessing. Um, but for those that have never heard about you or listen to the podcast where you were one of our guests. Can you just give a little bit about uh, background information about yourself? Yes, I I was raised in India and uh, I come from the group called Maimons, M-E-M-O-N. Um, as you said, last time when I checked the Joshua Project, I just see that there is a zero percent. I don't know how to update them that I'm a believer. <laughs> yeah, now but, it's zero, zero, zero point one percent. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I come uh, from that group and uh, they, they speak a dialect, but they don't even have a written script. Uh, so they come from a smaller, they are a business class people. They come from a part of Gujarat and they, they, they're very intelligent people. They're like, they have made a lot of money, though they're not very literate. They always try to stay within their own group. They're within their own clan. Wherever they move, they move with their clan. So, uh, and then uh, that's how they all moved to South India. My grandparents moved to South India. And as you know, like uh, compared to all the other states, South India is a little bit open to Christianity. A lot of missionaries have been there that's more educated uh, area. So I I went to school. So it was a blessing that I could read and write, but my parents were not able to read or write. So that's how it all started. So, yeah. And that's just my background. About how many, how many uh, people, uh, just a rough estimate, are, are in this people group? Definitely a few million. I am not sure because they are in America. They are in Africa. They... They're making money, and uh, that's how I know. Like, they're making millions and millions of dollars, and they are spending it in India. There's a large group in South Africa, as far as I know. 
So in London, a few million, I don't know, like at least seven to eight million people. I mean, yeah, I think that that's I'm really sure. important because when, whenever in English, of course, people that are native English speakers or people that are native, uh, you know, to America or native to Western Europe, whenever they hear the word tribe, I think that they oftentimes, or people group, they often think of a small little village with maybe a couple hundred people that, you know, kind of have always lived in the same area. But when you say eight million people or, you know, several million people, I mean, I'm, I'm calling yeah. you right now from Sweden. That's 10 million people. Uh, on one side wow. of me is Finland. Finland's like what? Like 5 million, 4 million. So, I mean, you're talking about twice the population of Finland or twice the population yeah. of Norway. Um, I'm sorry. I mean, it's, it's when you, when you put it in that perspective, you know, that there's, you know, 5 million people in Norway and you probably have more people in your people group than the entire nation of Norway, um, maybe even almost twice that amount, then people can get more of an idea of how what size that we're actually talking about. So when we say that your people are mostly unreached or, you know, 100% unreached, uh, you know, 100% yeah. minus you, that is a large number of people. That's like an entire nation that is has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, and uh, recently my my sister also accepted Christ, so that is wow. a big Wow, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I mean, they all know now I'm a Christian, so this time I visited India, so they all know I'm a Christian now, so uh, there is some curiosity that's coming up, but, you know, it's still in a very silent way. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I do a podcast, maybe after some couple of years, <laughs> maybe I might have some interesting stories to tell you. <laughs> hey, um, let me, let me just pause you for a second. I, like I said, you know, many people have never heard your testimony and there's a lot of mm -hmm. things that I would love to get to today. Um, you and I had a brief conversation just before we started the podcast and you brought up a mm -hmm. topic, which I think is extremely important, but before we get there, can we just mm -hmm. back up for a few minutes? Because I think that your testimony is extremely powerful and I would love for our audience to hear it. Could you just share a little bit? How did you go from being in a, in a pretty strict Muslim family to becoming a believer? Yes. Uh, my, like I was raised as like any other Muslim daughters, you know, like as I was um, taught Arabic first uh, pretty strict. I was not allowed to talk to boys, and uh, the superiority of Islam was always uh, being taught in my family. They insisted that we how we were better than uh, the other religion, and how important it is to love Allah. Everything like you can imagine, you can see from the movies or whatever you hear from outside. Those things are very true about how they raise their children. So I was raised in a very very strict. Um, Muslim family, like uh, I, I prayed five times and uh, I fasted. Like my first fasting for Ramadan was like uh, when I was seven years old, and that was a big uh, prideful moment for me and my family. And then when I was in fifth grade, I fasted for thirty days. You know, the Muslims they fast for thirty days, so I did all those things. So when I became and. Um, <clears throat> There was, uh, as I said, in South India, the education is very important. So they did send me to school and they sent me to a Catholic school. The only reason they sent me there was that was a girls' school. So just to keep me away from boys and keep me protected, they sent me to the girls' school. 
And uh, but I didn't hear any gospel or anything there. It was more ritualistic uh, things that were ha- that were happening. Uh, when I was in tenth grade, like fifteen years um, old, I um, I saw my um, no. So before that, I was like fourteen year old in that Catholic school. You know, it's not like a school in America, but there are like thousands and thousands of people. India is the most populated country, so there was a bunch of girls who were praying, like they were teenagers. They were they came from a very very poor background. Um, there was like whoever go to the English medium, they were all like a little bit affluent. And those who studied Tamil or the the, the state language, they did, they, came, they came from a very poor background. But they those girls, they did not even have a shoe or slippers on their feet. But they were praying like as if someone was sitting and listening to them. And that was my first experience. I saw them and uh, I was getting ready told them, hey, pray for me. And when they prayed, things just happened. And I was like, oh, wow. Uh, and that's all. It started there. And when I was in 10th grade, I went to North India. I went to the state of Rajasthan, which is uh, very dark. Even now, it is very, very dark. It's full of um, um, Mahavir followers and Hinduism and I don't think there how many percent of Christians are there. There's hardly you can see any Christian there. So there, my auntie was working in a school, the local school. So she said there was a um, foreigner who gave her that comic book. And um, it takes like two and a half days to go from South India to North India. So when I saw that book, I thought that would be a good read to read it on on the way back home because I would get bored for like two and a half days. You have to travel from North India to South India. So I just grabbed that book and put it in my bag. And uh, when she meant some foreigner gave it to me, she was very polite. If it had been an Indian, she would have not got it because it was a foreigner. She got it. Now I know that was a missionary because... Back in those days, even I had no idea what what was being given. So I kept it in my bag. And on the way back from Rajasthan to South India, I was just flipping through the pages. And it was the entire Bible in there. Uh, some Like uh, it started from Genesis to Revelation. It had some cartoon pictures in it. Um, there was like stories from Genesis, a little bit from Isaiah, a little bit from gospel, and then it went to Revelation. So, uh, I mean, you know, like a 15-year-old, I was just going through the stories. I was very much interested in stories. I was just flipping the pages. And there was one story where Jesus calms the storm, and uh, when the disciples were afraid, he just calms the storm, and he looks at them, and he asks them, in English, it says, oh, you of little faith. But if I have to translate the exact Hindi word that was put in that Bible, it would be like, you have no faith in me. That's what <laughs> it was written in Hindi. You have no faith in me. So I closed that comic book and I went back home, went back with my life. Um, you know, I was never allowed to step out of my house, school to home and then from 
I come back home and then if it's a holiday, I'm stuck like three months. If it's a holiday, I'm stuck in the house. The only people I'm seeing is my family members or some girls <laughs> who would come rarely. There was no phone. There was nothing back then. And uh, as a teenager, I had my own desires. I, <laughs> I was not pure or holy or anything just because I was sitting inside the house. I would get in trouble, but whenever I was getting in trouble, after I prayed my Muslim prayer, I would, I would feel like someone was telling, you have no faith in me. So whenever I was praying to that voice, the things would just happen. I don't know, like, uh, this, I was hearing this voice for like five years. I was, I know this was from Bible. I know this was Jesus that I was praying to. But I was doing all the Muslim rituals, whatever it was, like praying, fasting, everything was going on. But whenever there was a problem, the first person or the first voice I would hear is, you have no faith in me. And then I would say, yes, I have faith in you. Help me. And things will just come to pass. You know, like um, I was in college. One of my friends ran away and they were threatening to bring police to my house and uh I got that Bible when I was 15, and now I'm in college, like I'm 18 years old, 19 years old. No, I was like 19 back then. So you can imagine, like four or five years, this voice has been throughout. I mean, it was talking to me. I mean, I didn't understand what what it meant, but I know that if it, there is a trouble, I need, I hear this voice, and I need to pray to this voice. Oh, that voice is going to help me. And the, the faith was building so strong in that voice without me acknowledging who it was or what it was. But I know it was Jesus. So one day, um, my family owned a small-scale business. Uh, so there was a Hindu girl who was working in that small factory. Like, um, So she, my mother told that girl there she was a hindu she became a christian you know in a gossiping tone so i went and i asked her hey can you tell me about this man jesus so she said you know more more than me there is one lady who is a hindu priest wife she was a secret christian back then so she um uh, she, uh, so I went and talked to her. That's when she said, all along, who was talking to you, the Holy Spirit. And I, I just paused. And I did not know that. And he was God. And he was Jesus. And Jesus is God. And I cannot deny it because I'm the one who is hearing all these things. And I was like, um, uh, I didn't know that God can talk to you back, you know, like for me, the almighty God, the creator of universe, whom I was taught just, if he wills, he will give it to you. You know, always it's submission, surrender. That's the message I've heard. I've never heard that God can talk to person like me. And I was, I think that was like the best moment of my life. And I felt like I was born. That's that. That is what is called born again moment. I think I didn't know all these terms back then. I was just like everything looked so new to me. I felt like a new person. Like there was no sinner's prayer. There was no conviction. 
action. There was nothing. Uh, it was just the song of Solomon moment. Like I was talking to him and he was talking to me back since, I mean, at that period, it was such a lovely relationship that I can never forget. I, that has been the best moment of my life. Like, um, I know like after I became a Christian, I know people call them in front, <laughs> they come in, in front of altar, they give their life to Jesus. There was no formal conversation. It was like an instant love story between me and my Jesus because I didn't know he was God. I didn't know he was interested in me and I knew he was talking to me. And after I acknowledged him, it just became more intense. You know, our relationship became more and more intense. It, I cannot describe. Uh, it let me let me ask you. Like, let me ask you this: um, What was your family's reaction? I didn't tell them. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. What tell do you them think that they would have done if, if? I mean, what what do you think would have been their reaction had they known? I mean, was your family a, a very um, uh, dedicated religious family? Were they more uh, cultural Muslims? You know, they, they acknowledged the cultural norms, but they, they were not really practitioners. Or did they, did they actually believe very strongly in Islam and have a strong dedication to the Quran? Oh, they are absolutely like, I mean... They love Islam. They put, that was the year when I accepted Christ, probably closer to that period. My grandma went for to perform Hajj, you know, like the pilgrimage. They right. take it. So they take everything seriously. But, you know, like Moses uh, was hidden for some time and then he came out gloriously. So Jesus is in his sovereign thing. He protected me. But everyone saw my face was changed all of a sudden. My uncle commented, like, you look so bright. He, I mean, they could see the joy in my face. They could see there was so much change in me. They could see, I mean, literally, when they meant bright, uh, I had like a kind of a darker uh, shade. I mean, like kind of the dullness on my face, that was just lifted in a moment I accepted Christ. I could see in my pictures, if I just see the pictures, it's like, oh, yeah. So people could just see something different in me. And I remember it was the month of Ramadan that I got my first Bible and I was going, everyone get up, they wake up and they just start um uh, preparing for fast, and they wake up in the morning like three thirty, four o'clock to eat. So that's when it. And I would cover my Bible like a text, and they were, my family was illiterate. I remember, so that was an advantage. But my uncle could read and write, but <laughs> not me. I'd sit and go through my Bible entirely within my. A New Testament, it was an amazing experience. So uh, it was, my story was very different. God knows that how timid I was and 
how afraid I was. And he, my story was like exodus, like one step after the other. He took me out. And now I'm talking to you freely. It's a very big story, Eugene. Like <laughs> It really is. And I absolutely love it. But I know that there is something that you wanted to share. I would love to talk with you more about it. I mean, you now living in a, 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 a we can say Christian nation, even though there's a lot more secular than, you know, a, a Christian nation, but you, you basically, you live in the U.S., you um, are, are a believer, you attend a church where I met you at a very good friend of mine, uh, Billy Humphrey at the IHOP yeah. is where we met, and uh, so yeah. you have you have grown in your Christian faith, um, and, and but you, right. you still remember very clearly your background. You have family members that are still strong practicing Muslims, so you you can identify right. with Muslims because that is your your loved ones, your family, um, and so now yeah. you have started to see something that you think is a bit concerning. Can you just share a little bit about that? Yes, now I'm a mother of two children. Uh, I have a 12-year-old. And, uh, um, like, um, I think, as you mentioned, um, my kids go to a very strong church and they get everything there. But one thing I was, I feel like I know how Muslims raise their children. Like, I can give a couple of examples that I experienced in America. Like, um, so... People who are listening can make their own judgment what's happening here. I went to an Eid party, um, like last year, Ramadan Eid party, for the first time. And the Pakistanis uh, and the Indian Muslims, they were all gathered. They did not know I was a Christian. <laughs> but I tried to make a conversation with them, telling them, hey, I'm a Christian. <laughs> Uh, let let me ask you just that. really quick, because mm-hmm. I know that, you know, you, you say that you're going to, you said that, you know, you had visited family in Rajasthan. Um, I know that when you were talking about the Memon people, am I saying that correctly? Memon? Yes, Memon, Memon. Memon. Um, yeah. They're from the northwestern uh, part of India. Rajasthan is in the north. I mean, so you're right on the border of Pakistan. Do you speak Urdu? I do speak Urdu, uh-huh. uh, um, uh, but the Maimans, they originated mostly from Gujarat, but uh, I, I got my Bible from Rajasthan. My auntie lived in Rajasthan. You know, they moved from one state to another, you know. Okay, so, all right. Yeah, I do speak Urdu, yeah. I do speak Urdu. Okay, so you you are going to this this Eve party that is... Uh, right before the the fasting starts, which is, you know, a big celebration because people basically what you want to do is you want to eat enough in the dark time or, you know, most of the Muslims that I know, they like to eat enough during the dark time so that, you know, they can last through the daytime. And, uh, and if you don't have to work many of especially like in Egypt and stuff like that, many of the people that I know during the Ramadan, they sleep all day. And then they just live <laughs> yeah. life at night, so that they so that they just reverse their and it, and it works easy in in places like the Persian Gulf, um, like Northern Africa, because it's so stinking hot during the day. So it's right. it's pretty easy to you know sleep during the day when it's hot outside, and nobody in their right mind wants to go outside anyway when it's that hot. And then at nighttime when things get a lot cooler. The restaurants open up. I've, you know, I've been in Iran during the Ramadan. Um, mm-hmm. I've been in Saudi Arabia during the Ramadan. Uh, I've been in, you know, more secular areas like um, 
Malaysia or Turkey during Ramadan. And, and mm-hmm. I, so I've seen several different practices. So I, I know that this evening, right before the Ramadan, is very, very festive. So you're in this room with um, uh, people from Pakistan, and they don't know you're a believer. Continue. No, no. So there was a very interesting conversation. They were talking how they they raised their children. Uh, They were surprised that I was homeschooling, for sure. And uh, I think that, and then they were bragging how hard they work um, to put, like a lady had three sons, all three in Ivy League school. And she said that we are Muslims and we have to, place our children in those like one in harvard one in princeton and i forgot the other one where where wherever so like she i mean they are strategically placing their children in all the ivy league school and uh you know like i mean i just felt like what are we doing with our children <laughs> because for the sake of gospel how much more our children have to work hard they said for the sake of allah we need to do this blah 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 so that was one of the experience, and I felt like, oh. Uh, I can can I just stop you for a second? Because I find that this is very fascinating. The reason I find this fascinating is because Muslims, and it doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether I'm in the UAE, it doesn't matter whether mm-hmm. I am in uh, Urdu or uh, Urdu. It doesn't matter if I'm in if I'm in Pakistan or if mm-hmm. I'm in Kashmir, wherever. I always mm-hmm. find that when it comes to education. Christians Mm -hmm. do the best. Muslims don't like sending their kids to Christian schools, but sometimes like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, the ones Mm -hmm. that you, the schools that you just named, Oxford, Mm -hmm. all of these Mm -hmm. schools started off as missionary training centers. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but they they actually started um, to train missionaries. And today the very best schools that you have in the Middle East are all missionary schools. And so even right. though there is this... Yeah, you know, I mean, they are... Now they have realized, like, how they can um, enter into all these things. And, like, you, I don't know, Eugene, do you, have you seen the statistics lately? Like, in the medical school, majority of them are Muslims. And... Uh, I, I have seen this. My, and, I, and one of the things that has, has been interesting is... Uh, that many of these schools ha- are getting huge grants. So, so there's. I, I just want to take a pause here because I think this is a really good um, thing just to bring up for a moment. Uh, mm-hmm. With the with the Gulf states becoming super wealthy in oil in the last you know mm-hmm. few centuries, what they have done is they've started taking that money and investing it into lobby groups and education centers. So a lot of these universities Mm -hmm. really want that money to come from these uh, investors. But these investors are not giving it for free. The people from the Gulf Mm -hmm. states that are giving this money, they are requiring that the college offer a... Uh, a Muslim course or a course that everybody has to go through on like um, Muslim sensitivity. Um, they also put in a quota system to, to even students that may not necessarily qualify against competitors. 
if they come from a Muslim nation, a Muslim background, or they can say that that is their faith, then they actually can mm -hmm. be a part of a quota because the school will make an argument and say, well, by having more Muslims a part of our education system, it will make us more familiar with the Muslim part of the world. There's a large sector of the world that is Muslim, and if all of our students are not Muslim, how can they actually be associated in business or, or their job opportunities later on in Muslim areas if they don't if they've never even been exposed to Muslims themselves so they bring in uh, a lot of these Muslim students from other countries as well as from the United States and they are even if they don't get direct sponsor from the Gulf states the Gulf states are giving so much money to these universities that the universities are doing this to make more diverse student bodies to show to these Muslim countries that hey look Thank you for your money. Look what's increasing now. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and one of the things that we've seen is anybody that wants to get up in campus and speak out against Islam or say something that is not friendly to Islam, the campus will shut it down right away because they feel that will threaten their income coming from these oil-rich Gulf states. So please continue on. I have heard about this, you know, these in, the increased number of the student body being Muslim. So yes, I am familiar with that. Yes, and then that is a different different story. And another story, I have stories after stories that I've been listening, and I'm, I'm just trying to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and ask, Lord, why did you bring me to the country? What is your purpose? What do you want me to do? You know, Another story is our family friend's son goes to the medical school here in Georgia, and he said they brought a Muslim doctor to come and talk in the class, and he was also talk, talking about Islam, like, oh, if you killed one person, um, you killed the entire mankind, this and that. So they are also bringing the Muslim, I mean, uh, and he was so upset. He was telling, like, can they bring a Christian and can they come and talk about a Christian faith in the class? He was so upset. He came to our house and that's a student. He's a good Christian. And he was really upset, like, what was happening. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that is infiltrating in our colleges. Uh, I don't know, like, if they are funded or why do they allow Muslims to come. And one more very interesting thing, it's not only in the level of college. I'm trying to reach out to one of the Pakistani families. So her daughter was visiting from London, and the daughter has a 12-year-old son. So I took them for an um, evening dinner and uh, because I wanted to be nice to them and I wanted to love on them because they were just ladies. So I just took my son because she was bringing her son and I didn't take my husband. So it was like a ladies thing. And the boys were t sitting separate, like 12-year-old with 12-year-old. And, um, and I'm with this Pakistani family. So... That lady was trying to convince me how peaceful they are in London and whatever has been returned that was back in Quran for that period of time, blah, blah, blah. At the same time, her 12-year-old is having a conversation with my 12-year-old. Hey, tell me about your church. Uh, I heard that your Bible says that uh, you can be okay with homosexual and your president also proves it blah 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 and then he was asking some questions that has been 
talked by him in the mosque and and poor child thankfully my son uh coming from i mean of course i do discuss all uh, certain things with my family and with my husband and the church i go to is like really a very strong church so my son is at least having some clue about islam and what he was trying to say and so he stood up and he said no bible doesn't say these things and he was able to defend and tell the gospel and put things straight so i am concerned like how many children are able to understand of course we ask uh, we do teach bible in our sunday school we do teach them but do they know how to defend faith uh when a muslim come and ask uh, because they have been trained as a child as a child uh like uh, tell us where did jesus say i am god in bible none of our children would be able to answer oh how can can you explain trinity so all these things have been taught to the children and so there is like a lot of conversion happening in the colleges from from like a recent peer report says like 50% of the muslim i mean who, who converted to islam they come from the evangelical background so my heart aches usually listening to all these stories so are our children ignorant what are we supposed to do so as a mother i am thinking in those direction how to educate our children how to um tell them what evil is there <laughs> waiting for them when they go to college i'm doing all my best homeschooling but ultimately they have to go to the college and it's not an is it not our responsibility to train our children to stand up because it's 1.8 billion people and now they are coming out as you said they uh, they cannot get the interest from bank uh, so what most of the mosque are doing is uh, for the medical school and stuff the mosque is sponsoring money for the students to go to these kind of schools and colleges so it is a very different scenario where we need to pray about it where we need to ask more questions and where we need to educate our children that's how i feel right now eugene that's that's where my heart is uh, what are you doing for what are what are you teaching you uh, because i mean you have a very powerful testimony that you're not talking about islam as a distant observer you're not talking about mm-hmm. islam as someone that has done the research in university you lived is, uh, yes. as a muslim you were brought up as a muslim what are you teaching your children well uh my children thankfully they got uh they got to see my family we visited them last december so they got to see them they are really loving people eugene not everyone is a terrorist they are very loving people islam is evil but muslims are good people you know they do know most of the stuff that is being taught in um quran so i am teaching them the difference i am teaching them how to see through things i am Okay, let me put it this way. I am just plain and direct what Quran is and what Bible is. I am just not sugarcoating and telling, oh, we cannot offend people, oh, we cannot do. No, I am just saying speaking the truth. I'm being very brutally honest 
<laughs> what it says. I, I'm not embarrassed to talk about what Muhammad did or what happens or why the terrorists are acting the way the terrorists are acting and why some of them are peaceful, why they're ignorant. So it's a very just being literate and talking that to the children helps. And even at the, there is, you can censor it according to the age, but it's the open talk is definitely going to help. So when, when, when the Muslim come to them, at least they are prepared and they're not so ignorant. So that's what I'm doing right now. That is awesome because you really do have, um, there, there is an estimate. It's a, there's an estimate that as long as the Muslim population is under 5%, you have a relatively peaceful group of people. Once they reach right. over 5%, then they become more active. And uh, once they reach more than 20%, then you start getting violent factions. Um, and, and one of the best places that you can see that in is places like um, uh, Lebanon. So I don't know how much you know about Lebanon or or have studied Lebanon. Lebanon was the the small little area carved out by the French after World War II to give in the Middle East to Middle Eastern Christians. So you had Palestine that was carved out for the Jews, and then you had um, uh, Lebanon that was carved out for the Christians by the French. And Beirut was like the best economy. You had the best universities. It was called, Beirut was called Paris of the Middle East. Um, it was, it was, they were flourishing leaps and bounds, but the Muslim areas had a lot of warfare. So many refugees went and moved into uh, Lebanon and they came to Lebanon for the economy. They came to Lebanon for the jobs. They came to Lebanon for the education. And once they tipped the percentage, all hell broke loose war broke out and it, and then it was basically hunting season for all of the Christians. So they hunted down all of the Christians. And so when people talk about Muslims, you're absolutely right. Not all Muslims are bad, but when we talk about extremists, we don't need to be talking about the majority. We're even if it's a small percentage, you just said um, that there's about 1.8 billion uh, Muslim believers around the world. That is a huge number of people. If we're only talking about 1% of those are extremists, you're, you're still talking about in the millions of people that are extremists. And what, that what, no, no proof, Eugene. Sorry to cut you off. Yeah, yeah. 40 people. 40% of them believe in extremism, killed apostates. 40% of them, including London, they believe that killing the apostate is okay. So it's, it has crossed. 1% is what the politicians are talking about. Oh, yes, absolutely. I was, data, I was being more fair than you. I, what I was saying is I was going to the extreme and saying if even if it's just 1%, but you're absolutely right. They've done yeah. – Pew Research has done um, – polling in the US as well as in the UK. And what mm -hmm. they have found is that a large number of both American Muslims and um, uh, uh, British Muslims agree with, um, for instance, uh, killing uh, people that uh, insult Prophet Muhammad uh, in a cartoon. Mm -hmm. or like if you draw a cartoon and you go after the person that drew the cartoon, um, uh, uh, like you were saying, up to 40% or up to 60% of American Muslims and British Muslims would say, yes, it is acceptable to kill someone who disgraces the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, 
Um, one of the things that our people don't really understand is that there's been such a powerful campaign to prove that Islam is peaceful. And the reason they have to go on this campaign is because it's, it's people believe what they see and what they see is a lot of violence. And so they have to, they have to counteract that with these, these political campaigns, these, uh, educational campaigns, uh, that we see on college campuses. We see it playing out in our schools. And the, one of the challenges that we have is that the Quran is divided up into two parts, right? It's divided up right. into, um, the pre- uh, Meccan period and the post-Meccan period, or uh, the pre-Medina right. or the post-Medina. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it depends on whether it was after uh, Muhammad was cast out to Medina or before he was cast out to Medina. And the Quran is not written chronologically. <laughs> to be right. honest, it's not even yeah. written. It's not it's the most boring book you can ever read. Not only boring, it's <laughs> there are many parts that are just incoherent. I've read the Quran several times, and there are parts where I get to, I'm like, wait a minute. Maybe I fell asleep when I was reading this because I daydream sometimes, right? When I'm reading, and I'll be and I'll be daydreaming, uh-huh. and I'll be like, oh, never. Oh, wait, I need to back up. I think I've already read this. Oh, wait, I did mm-hmm. read this. It was in a different part because it repeats itself. And then I'll get to a certain yeah. part and I'll be like, what does that mean? It's it's an incomplete sentence. It's not even a correct sentence. What? And so there, there are parts of it. But um, my point is this. Be- when Muhammad was a, was a minority in Mecca, when he was trying to recruit... Um, the Jews and the Christians to come and join him, he used very loving, peaceful language. Once he went to mm-hmm. Medina and he was he was kicked out of Mecca and was sent to Medina, then everything after Medina was kill the Christians, kill the Jews, kill everybody that is not Islam. That was kind of his uh, mantra at that time. And so what we right. see is two different parts, post-Medina, pre-Medina. And then um, one of the things that I like to point out to people is that you don't find peaceful individuals when they are the minority. Everybody is peaceful when they're the minority if they value their life. Because when you're the minority, you can easily be squashed in your rebellion. Because the Quran teaches them that. But you find (laughs) those that are peaceful, the real peaceful people shine when they have the power. Because when they have the power not to be peaceful and they still remain peaceful, that is when you understand whether they're really peaceful or not. We don't know whether Muhammad was peaceful because when he had the power not to be peaceful, he was not peaceful. And so one of the things that we that we see, I know I have several friends that I've worked with for many years um, that are Muslim. Some of the people that I care about the the deepest in Iran that I still work with very closely, um, communicate with them on a weekly basis. They are Muslim. Um, they have not converted to Christianity and they're very loving people, but they are loving because they are made in the image of God and they still have that on their DNA. They're not loving because of what they learn in the Quran. The, the more, um, you embrace the Quran, I believe the more you are forced to accept the violent nature of Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's very true because, uh, like, I felt like more you read Bible, more you want to follow Jesus, you become one of the best person on earth. But more you follow Quran, more you try to follow 
Muhammad, it just works very opposite. So, and we see this yeah, with his followers as well. <laughs> you know, you know, people in America they often listen to people like you know Oprah Winfrey, and Oprah Winfrey would say something like, "Oh, you know, Christian extremists." And Muslim extremists are both violent. We need to eradicate them both, both Muslim extremists and Christian extremists. No, if you understand the word extremist, extremist means I will follow the teaching of the leader to the extreme. If you follow the prophet Muhammad to the extreme, you get ISIS, you get al-Baghdadi. Um, if you follow Jesus in his teachings to the extreme, you get Mother Teresa. <laughs> Mother Teresa is an extremist. She's an extremist Christian. If you have a violent Christian, he is actually violating the code that Jesus taught. taught. If you have a, uh, when, when you follow the history of Muhammad, you have an individual who was a terrorist. He robbed caravans. That's how he got his wealth. That's how he built his army. He uh, took women and enslaved them, made them the wives of his followers as well as his own wife. Um, he had um, uh, slaves and gave out slaves. I mean, he was a slave owner. He was a warmonger. Um, he carried a sword, you know, that he named, and that was a very, you know, pivotal part of his leadership. Uh, so there's a lot of things that just don't jive with modern society, but they're trying to make it fit. So I think what you brought up is so important because so many Christians are not prepared to answer questions in regards to our own faith, and but they are willing to accept a lie about another faith. You know, my son went to a Christian missionary school. My oldest son went to a Christian missionary school in Hong Kong called HKIS. HKIS was started by Christian missionaries who first came to Hong Kong uh, several centuries ago, and they went or uh, decades ago. And when they when they came to Hong Kong, they started up the school. Today, it's the number one school in all of Hong Kong. It's an amazing school. When he was a when he was in kindergarten. Uh, in first grade, they had a course where at this missionary school, they taught them to make a prayer rug for the month of Ramadan and taught them every day about Ramadan. And they brought in a an imam from the Hong Kong Kowloon Mosque to come and teach them about Ramadan. The problem that I had with that is I baptized two Pakistanis in the ocean in front of our house that their lives were threatened, they had to go into hiding because the imam at the Kowloon Mosque in Hong Kong wanted them dead because they converted. And then that is the person that they bring in to teach the children in you know kindergarten and first grade about Islam and the peace and loving part about Islam and then even have kids you know make a rug. At the same time, at this Christian missionary school, it was unheard of to have a pastor come in and teach them about Christ and have them to pray you know, to Christ, um, that would have been, uh, considered to be, uh, offensive. That would have been considered to be, uh, you know, something that you shouldn't do. Um, on the same token, my youngest son who went to a British private school his entire time, um, he, before their big, uh, GCSEs, which is the British, uh, testing system in, in Hong Kong, um, before he would do the, you know, the GCSEs, they had to sit, and you're familiar with this because you're from India, um, they had to sit and do meditation. 
They had to sit cross-legged. They, they had to, you know, do uh, the whole uh, Buddhist Hindu sitting ceremony for what? prayer and, and, and clearing your mind and doing the, the, oh, the humming. Yeah. Um, the, this, this is extremely dangerous stuff that I think our children are going to be facing more and more. And that's why I love that you brought this up. And I love that you shared what you are sharing with your children because people that are listening to this podcast, this is such an important part of raising children in today's uh, world. Even though they come from Christian families, they need to be prepared for the enemy that's going to assault them from all directions, uh, from educational institutions and regular society. That's very true because uh, um, as we are getting more closer to God these days, like people are praying for revival and uh, want to know more of Jesus. Like my family was, they were good Muslims. They were strong Muslims, but never was, like as a child, I was never uh, asked to cover uh, with hijab and everything, like as a little child. But when I went back to India after several years, like last Last December, I was shocked how much the fanatical they have become, how much um, the the doctrine has been changing. They have become more fanatical than. And and why why changed, why is that? Why do you think that they there is more of a fanaticism among them? I think now, I mean the media and the I mean they are educating more and more and more. You know, like. As you said, the imams are coming from different parts of the world and they are bringing their... The Wahhabism was like one or two people. I don't know if you've heard of the Wahhabism that comes from Saudi Arabia, which is a strong doctrine. So they... they Now those teachers are coming and they are coming to America. They are coming to uh, UK. They are coming to India and they are teaching it and people are so thirsty you know if we as a christian like we all want we have in our dna we all want to love god and these people really are hungry for god and they and you know when someone comes and gives them something other than gospel initially it starts as they are loving their god but then slowly you know how the enemy works so everyone is hungry for Jesus. Everyone is hungry for gospel. Like without them knowing, you know, they have been, they were meant to love God. So I was like, uh, I was very shocked to see just because they were so much hungry for God, any doctrine, you know, that they think that can bring them closer to God, they are willing to accept. And, and if it is coming in their known name, Islam, they're going to do what it requires them to do. And I don't know, after a few years, if they come to know killed up, I mean, they probably know, but once they believe that's what Prophet Muhammad has asked them or commanded them to do, uh, it can, I don't know how things are going to change, but we'll see. I don't know. I'm hoping Jesus will. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you just mentioned, that. because this is a big thing that most people need to know, uh, Wahhabism is, uh, it, this is a this is a very ultra-conservative uh, form of Sunni Islam that comes from Saudi Arabia. And one of the things right. that makes it extremely dangerous is that it comes with a lot of funding. Uh, 
It comes with a lot of influence. Uh, because it right. comes from Saudi Arabia, you have what I was just talking about before, that oil money backing this. Mm-hmm. And what is interesting is that when, um, when, when we saw you know, a large number of refugees leaving from Syria and Iraq, um, many of them going to Europe, but many of them also going to the United States, um, the Wahhabists from Saudi Arabia were actually paying for those refugees to go to the West. Uh, keep in mind, these were Syrians and Iraqis who speak Arabic, which means that Saudi Arabia could have easily taken them into their country, but they did not. These are individuals who would have been uh, more familiar with the religion of Saudi Arabia. They would have been more familiar with the language of Saudi Arabia. They would have been more familiar with the culture and the food of Saudi Arabia. Going from Syria to Saudi Arabia is a much less drastic change than going from Syria to London, from going from Syria to Atlanta, Georgia. That is a drastic change. You, you're changing culture. You're changing nationality. You're changing language. You're changing religion. You're changing food. All of those things are important in life. But yet Saudi Arabia was not taking them into their country. They were paying for mosques to be built in America, paying for mosques to be built in Europe. Why? Because Saudi Arabia, the Wahhabi, Wahhabists, <laughs> I, I got to get that word out of there. The Wahhabists wanted to to um, send more Muslims into Christian areas so that the Muslim population will begin to grow in those areas. This is very much a part of what I call social jihad, where there is a specific reason that the, the Muslims are focused, especially from Saudi Arabia, to send more Muslims to the West and support them in the West. So uh, Saudi Arabia has been buying up old churches and turning them into mosques. And then their community right. has been coming in and from areas like um, uh, Iraq, like Syria, like the areas that have been hit hard by war, and then helping them go into these other countries and then supporting them to maintain their religion. And then guilting Christian nations into, one, accepting them. It's something that It's so funny to hear Saudi Arabia saying, oh, you're racist or you're, you're anti-Islam, you're Islamophobic because you're not taking these refugees. Dude, Saudi Arabia, you're not taking refugees. What are you talking about? You have so much money. And then they're like, oh, no, we're not taking refugees, but we'll send money to build mosques for these refugees. We'll send money for these refugees to be able to make a life for themselves in these other nations. And now these other nations have to change their law to accept these refugees. I mean, I'm right now, I'm in Sweden. There were so many churches that were taking in refugees and the Wahhabists were saying, hey, your cross in the churches that are accepting refugees is offensive to those refugees. Take it down. And they were. They were saying, hey, Christian nurses that are wearing crosses around your neck in Swedish hospitals, those are offensive to your um, Arab patients. Take those crosses off your neck. So, Laws were passed that you take off the crosses from your neck. So there have been these huge inroads that Wahhabists, like you were talking about, schools is one part of it, but in so many different areas. So when you told me that you know you're hearing from uh, the Muslims in the West, like in London, um, <clears throat> you're hearing from others that you know uh, people have a false understanding of Christianity. And Christians have a false understanding of Islam. That's true. I'm 
think it's high time we all educate ourselves and 1.8 billion and my heart is breaking Eugene as a like a especially I if there are a women listener I want to tell them like even at these men you know like muslim men have are having conversation with um um christian men or the women there's no one who is reaching out to those women they are behind the veil they are inside my heart breaks there's not even one christian who could go and reach out and as you said like you know all things work to gather for our good maybe the refugees are coming because we christians need to stand up and go and reach out to them and not give them what they want but you know to give them the gospel and give them the truth and maybe this is our chance to go and reach out to them then you know like i don't know what government or secular people are trying to do but as a christian i feel this is a good opportunity for gospel this is a good opportunity i mean unless we don't stand up we don't go inside and work i mean those women are they don't know the language already they have been abused you know the quran uh, permits to beat their wife right i think this is not a anything new that you're hearing but so they've been abused inside so i really want to if someone some women is listening to this podcast please go reach out to those muslim women they don't know they don't know the world they are they like one of my friend nabil qureshi who passed away he said like my mother has lived 30 years in this country not even one christian has ever reached out to her you know wow. so wow. I, my heart aches for all the women and and the children so it's high time usually that we as a christian change our thinking process and teach our families and we women just get up and go <laughs> and talk to the muslim women and So I think the responsibility is increasing as yes there is a problem but what are we doing and I I, I ask this question all the time what am I doing so no, I, I think it's- I'm so glad that you said that because that is where we have to come back to we can we have to recognize the facts we have to recognize the threat but we have to also remember we do not fight against flesh and blood it's not the people that are our enemy they are slaves they have been mm-hmm. enslaved many as you know i mean the, the islam is is kind of like the new jersey mob right when you get into it you can't get out alive if you leave the new jersey mob they will kill you <laughs> because you're not allowed to leave it. um islam is same the same way so you have people like you who are born into islam and they may have thought about you know leaving it or or they may have just been disgusted with it and turn away from it but they also know that their jobs their livelihoods their marriages their very life is on the line if they turn away and become an apostate you know against the religion so we have to love them we have and it, how sad is it when muslims come to a christian nation and they live in your neighborhood or they live in a neighborhood where there are several churches i mean you're in the south you're in an area that is considered to be the bible belt of america how sad is it if somebody comes to the south of america an area that is full of christians a church almost on every corner and nobody shares with them 
the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the, these are not our enemies. They are our brothers and sisters that Christ died for and loves. And we need to reach out to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you told me an amazing story, mm-hmm. or you started to, um, about a, a dear family member of yours that has just become a believer. How did that happen? Uh, that was through me. Like, she was, I think her, her faith was questionable. That's why I didn't share. Like, when I became a believer, I was, because, she, you know, she was very much younger than me, and she would never tell anything to my family. So I have to sneak and do it. Back in those days, I used to watch a television show when no one was there at home, the Christian television show. And I saw her weeping <laughs> while watching that. I think that was the starting point or triggering point. And then I think she started seeing my life and seeing everything. And slowly she started giving her life to Jesus. But because of her uh, unstable mindset. I wasn't sure what what she was going to do, but now she is living for Jesus. And yeah, so yeah, uh, you know, I'm so thankful that God can touch people through television, can, can touch through podcasts. God can touch anyone the way He wants. So I'm very thankful for you, Eugene. And I really wanted to bring up your book, Chasing Revival. I was very thankful for that book because recently I'm studying uh, about Islam in detail. And one of the things that came up to me was like, people, the Muslims are trying to make like how uh, during the medieval times, Islam was best and how Christians... Uh, the Christianity was not the right thing, and that's why the Islam came, and that's the thing that they want the Westerners to believe. So before closing, I really wanted to thank you for that book that is the need of the hour. So, like, like they are romanticizing Islam, that as a golden period, and they want to criticize Christianity, how evil it was and why Islam was so beautiful and why Islam was necessary. And they were trying, they are trying to eradicate The book really, really blessed me a lot in my study, um, in my study. So I just wanted to thank you for that book too. Thank you so much, my dear sister. It has been a real pleasure talking together with you. Thank you for joining us for another Back to Jerusalem podcast. Let's stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you, and God bless. And thank you so much for joining us for another Back to Jerusalem podcast. Again, I'm Eugene Bach, your host for this time, coming to you live on delay from somewhere within the borders of Sweden. God bless you.